0: Arzy, I'm upset today, man. What about I'm upset. what? How? I, so? And I, don't, I don't know how you aren't either. Can you believe Prince William is the sexiest ball guy in the world? Look at us uh, too. Are you kidding?
1: Okay, it did, it did sting just a little bit because you and I have been doing the two bald guys since way before Prince what's his face and let yeah. me just let me just add you're looking fine today my friend oh, just well. fine
0: and i don't know if you and him are actually bald you guys are still holding on to the dream my dream is long gone
1: so I, okay mm-hmm. since since you brought it up can i just admit to how much i hate the current look i have right now which does look like i'm still holding on i remember a picture that my beloved snapped of me when we were away in London years ago. And it was from behind on some street and I wasn't wearing my ball cap. And I'm like, like, uh, listen, I'm past the point of my life of caring. But what I didn't like is that it it made it look like I was that guy that was still trying to, I'm not my, you know what the honest to God truth is. And it pains me to say it. I'm lazy. I'm lazy. So I, I buzz it with the Clippers once a week and this is actually what what you're seeing if you're watching us on YouTube is is 8 days but I should do it more often I should just cuz I I have given up I just am too lazy to really show that I've given up
0: I'm thinking laser treatment just do cuz I beck it <laughs> and I got like the Hulk Hogan going you know like it's pretty far back down the back of the head yeah like you know my hair is running down my back running away from my face and i don't blame it so i'm thinking i might just do the laser therapy get it r- get rid of it save my money on bic.
1: i want to how do you how do you BIC that you just pick it blind yeah yeah see All that's the probably time. what people Gillette. do i i should do it i should do it it's, i don't it's do it so worth it
0: anyway th- that's what that's uh, the level of conversation <laughs> we have on ohl stories right now because there's no stories around the ohl
1: yeah. See, I was going to say, I thought maybe you were going to be upset because, you know, there's no news from the league to talk about, but why should we be upset, more upset this week than we were last week or the week before or the week before or the week before that? So. Yeah, exactly. I'm not yeah. upset.
0: Hey, quick stick tap to Logan Stanley getting his first NHL goal. Um, that's it. Do you want me to enter our guest this week and we can just get out of
1: here? Yes, because our guest is going to make reference. I was just going to quickly ask and I, I think I know the answer, but the biggest goal in Logan Stanley's career so far. He's always going to remember that first NHL goal.
0: To an open corner, Thompson is there. Thompson, two flames on him. Kyle Conner comes in to help over to Stanley, and the slot shoots and scores! Top up. the big defenseman, Logan Stanley's on the board,
1: and this one is tied at two. Does it compare to Game 7 with 53 seconds to go in Sault Ste. Marie 2017? putting the Rangers and the Greyhounds into overtime, double overtime. Stanley in the corner, battles for that puck. With Brown and Sherwood, it goes around the goal, Bunneman's going to get to it. He protects it along the boards. Logan Stanley, an open look. He scores! He scores! Logan Stanley, the Waterloo boy from the blue line! And we're fit to be tied. Game 7 drama in the shoe. And our guest on this podcast will remember where he was during that playoff series. That was a pretty cool goal. Uh, Our guest this week, let's
0: do the intro. He doesn't need one. (laughs) Bob McKenzie.
1: Bob, I think of you, obviously, as a guy that needs absolutely no introduction. And maybe a little bit, if I can put it this way, like the Wayne Gretzky of the Ontario Hockey League. Just because Wayne Gretzky had that one magical year in the Sioux. People kind of forget that he had been with Peterborough for three games prior to that. And you, so well regarded and so influential in the game of hockey, maybe many forget that it all started for you at the Sioux Star back in 1979. And I don't think you had even graduated from Ryerson yet. How did that first job come to pass?
2: Yeah, you know what? Um, I got a summer job at uh, the Sioux Star the summer of 1978. I should back it up a little bit. So my, my future brother-in-law at the time, it was my girlfriend's brother, but my wife became my wife, Cindy, Uh, John Goodwin, he played for the Wexford midgets and they won the right. They were back in the old air Canada cup. And now it's the TELUS, whatever the national midget championship. Um, He was playing for Wexford and they won the Ontario, they got to compete in the Ontario aspect of that. And was in Sault Ste. Marie right after Christmas. So I went up with them on a bus to Sioux St. Marie. And when I was there, I got to meet the sports editor of the Sioux star and somebody else. And, and I kind of put my name in the hat for a summer job. And, and so I was fortunate enough uh, at the end of my second year of Ryerson to get a summer job at the Sioux star in the news department, not sports. And um, as fate would have it, that April or May, the OHL draft, my future brother-in-law, John Goodwin, got drafted in the fifth round by the Sioux Greyhounds. And so then at the end of the summer, I went back to Ryerson for my third year. He came up to the Sioux and made the Sioux Greyhounds, not only made the Sioux Greyhounds, but was rookie of the year in the Ontario Hockey League. He beat Dom Beaupre. Um, that was the year the, uh, the Greyhounds drafted Paul Coffey in the first round. He was the same age as my, my brother-in-law. And uh, of course, Coffey went on to become a, a Kitchener Ranger. And by the time I was back covering the Greyhounds, the next season I was writing the story about coffee being traded to the Kitchener Rangers from the Sioux Greyhounds. So that was basically, I got the summer job. And uh, from there, I, the, the Sioux star said, well, hire you full time when you graduate, if we have a spot open. And I've told this story many times before they said, but if it's, if somebody leaves between September and December, we've got to fill the job right away. But if somebody leaves between January and April and you're graduating in April, we'll hold off and wait for you to graduate. And so as it turned out, somebody left the Sioux Star and it was in the sports departments, which was even better because I hated the thought of being a news reporter. All I wanted to do was write hockey. Um, and the guy that left the Sioux Star, his name was Rob Stone. He went to Winnipeg and I don't know whatever became of him, but I know he had a couple of kids and their names Mark Stone and Michael Stone. <laughs> and uh, so, so my, my slow pitch buddy from the summer of 78, um, Stoney decided to go to Winnipeg with his family, his wife, and have kids out there. And of course, they went on to both be NHLers. And I got my job at the Sioux Star full time uh, that summer of April of 79 and got to cover the Greyhounds for a couple of seasons.
0: What was it like going to those games and covering your future brother-in-law?
2: Yeah, you know what? It was interesting, obviously. Huge conflict of interest. But, I mean, <laughs> what are you going to do? I mean, not cover the team, not take the job. Uh, and, and, it, and it did make for interesting times because um, that's that first season, of, that first full-time year of covering the Sioux Greyhounds for me, um, Terry Crisp was the new coach, and uh, they didn't do very well. And uh, at the end of the year, I wrote a column basically, um, and I was, when I started out in the business, um, I was pretty full of myself and I was a bit of a, you know, bit of a muckraker. I wanted to stir things up or whatever. So I basically wrote a column at the end of that season, basically saying Terry Crisp did a terrible job with the team. And it wasn't easy to do because my brother-in-law is on the team. So it looks like this is all coming from my brother-in-law, which it wasn't, but Nevertheless, you know, I just said, well, too bad if people think that. This is what I thought. I'm a columnist and I get paid for my opinion. And, and uh, Crispy, who I'm pals with now still, um, he went ballistic. And, uh, and he wanted me banned from the dressing room. So, so Sam McMaster was the general manager of the Sioux Greyhounds at the time. And uh, Sam was a pretty creative guy. So he told Terry Crisp, okay, I'll ban him from the dressing room. Sam did not want to ban a Sioux star reporter from the dressing room, knowing the kind of blowback you'd get on something like that, not just in the Sioux, but league wide would be a big deal. So he printed up a letter that said, Bob McKenzie's not allowed to be in the dressing room, but he posted it on the back of the dressing room door. So that when I go to walk through the door, there's nothing on the door. The door is open and I go in and Jay O'Connor was an overage goalie and, and uh, it was late in the season, as I said, when I wrote this column. And Jay O'Connor, the overage bully, said, what are you doing in here? And I said, oh, nothing, just working. And he goes, no, you're banned from the room. And I said, no, I'm not. And he goes, yeah, you are. And he goes over and he opens the door and he shows me the letter. And and I'm like, oh, wow. And so I next time I saw Sam, I go, Sam, uh, I saw that letter on the back of the door. Am I banned from the dressing room? And he goes, yeah. I go, you never told me. And he goes, yeah. And I go, what's the point of banning me from the dressing room if I don't know that I'm banned from the dressing room and you're not enforcing the ban? And he goes, well, I knew Crispy would get over it sooner or later. But in the meantime, when he's in the dressing room talking to the players, he would see the letter on the door and know that I was banned from the dressing room. uh, But it didn't stop you from going in and doing your job. So I thought it worked for everybody.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Any chance that Crispy wrote you a letter about five years later when his greyhounds went perfect on home ice <laughs>
2: <laughs> no i don't think so but uh, i see crispy uh when the bobby or golf tournament was still happening in Perry sound before covid crispy was always there it's his hometown Perry sound of course and we used to joke about a lot of stuff so now i get uh, it was all all fun and games. that was crispy's first year his his first year as a coach really outside he did some assistant coaching in the nhl with philly but um his first year as a head coach was with uh, was at in Sault Ste. Marie, and I was there. So good times.
0: Walking into that role, your first role, your brother, your future brother-in-law is on the team, and Terry Crisp is a pretty intimidating guy. And then he bans you from the dressing room. Did you ever get discouraged moving forward?
2: Uh no, not really. I, what I realized early on is there's a line I use sometimes. Somebody's always mad. Somebody's always mad at you in in our business. And so you just kind of take it as a, uh, a fact of life and, uh, go on from there. But yeah, usually if you're doing your job, somebody's not too happy with you.
0: Any more run-ins with Crispy?
2: No, no, that was, that was the, the only really big one. Um, so yeah, we, 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 now I wasn't around for a ton of time after that. Um, cause in, uh. Oh, for the 81-82 season, I went back to Toronto and back to home in Scarborough and, uh, and worked part-time at the Globe and Mail and did some freelance for the Hockey News. And then in June of 82, became editor-in-chief of the Hockey News. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, that was an interesting season for sure. So yeah. there was two, two, two full seasons, two full seasons with Crispy. Um, his first year and his second year. And in the second year, the Greyhounds were a juggernaut. And of course, they were derailed by the Orville Tessier-led, Brian Bellows, uh, Al McInnes, Wendell Young, Kitchener Rangers. Um, the Greyhounds were the top team in the regular season, but uh, came up short in the playoffs in the OHL championship uh, against the, uh, the Rangers. So it's funny the, to, to look back on it now and see sort of the connection between Kitchener and the Sioux and with my son Mike there now and, uh, and what have you. But, uh, yeah, it's crazy.
1: Oh my gosh! On that note, then, as I jump way ahead in the timeline here, but how about just a, a couple, few seasons ago, Game Seven Western Conference Final, and and your son's team loses in double overtime. What's that oh, impact? No. You must have been on pins dying. and needles following. Sure, I I
2: watched the entire. I, n- I never sat down for the entire overtimes. I was pacing around in our house in in, in Brooklyn. Um, and uh, you know, and so many, so many chances that uh, they they missed on, and then for the one that went in, it was a bit of a deflection, and uh, boy, it was uh, it was a tough one to take because it would have been great to go to the OHL final and see what they would have done
1: against Hamilton. Your approach, Bob, in those early days as a as a beat reporter. Or a sports reporter, a general sports reporter, it would have been with the Sioux Star. So you're you've got to cover everything in, in Sioux Saint Marie, not yes. just hockey. But you you wanted to write hockey, you made that your focus. How did you cultivate and and you know de- develop your chops, as we say, as a as a sports as a hockey writer at that time?
2: Well, you're right. You know, the Sioux Star, they want you to go cover the fastball game. They want you to go do the stock car races. They want you to go down and do the, 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 the club championship at the golf course. And and you got to do all that stuff. But I figured if I kept on coming up with story ideas that were hockey related, um, that, you know, they might not be as interested in the discretionary other things that sometimes get covered, sometimes don't get covered. So I, I just tried to turn the hockey into a full-time beat, which I more or less did when I was there. And so you just keep on supplying Really good, as much information as you could on the Greyhounds, and that's the biggest show in town, no doubt. And uh, the fans, but you, you know, you still end up at the stock car races on Sunday night or whatever.
0: Did you have a favorite driver? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I don't even remember. It was just like that was anything other than hockey. That was work. And yeah. When it was hockey, when it was going to the going to the rink, it was it wasn't work
0: you're up in the Sioux and they got a couple guys on or up front on that team. Rick Tockett, a uh, guy like Ron Francis. What was it like watching those guys mature and then covering them again in the national league?
2: Yeah. Tockett came in after oh, I, okay. I was gone, but, um, but you're right. I mean, the, uh, the, 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 first full-time year that I was there, um, that was Ronnie Francis's first year. John Beesbrook was the goalie. Um, so, yeah, you, you, you know, Ronnie was exactly the way he is now, very studious. He was the, the kid on the bus doing his homework all the time. Very scholastic, uh, really good player. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it it was great. I mean, to to have that experience and uh, to, to cover junior hockey, you know, the, the players that go to junior hockey, they want to make it to the National Hockey League. So did I. Um, And so covering junior hockey the way I covered it and the way the the, the kids approach playing it, um, probably not that much different. My goal was to go into the national hockey league and be a hockey writer, be a beat reporter for, to cover an NHL team. And so I was doing everything I possibly could in the Sioux to try and realize that dream, same as the players were doing the same thing, but um, it was, it was great seeing all the the players for, you know, to go to the Memorial cup that year, the Kitchener went to and, uh, and, you know, Dale Howard, and and Dougie Gilmore and the Cornwall Royals were there. And so just to, to, I love junior hockey. It it was fantastic to be able to see all these future NHL stars at that age and to, to get to know them and to be around the rinks and to get to know the NHL scouts and who've gone on to become NHL general managers and team presidents. And, uh, you know, I I just had a great affection for junior hockey then, and it's
1: carried right through. You had the chance, Bob. You you continued to cover junior hockey and and the Canadian Hockey League. And in '93, when when the Greyhounds finally broke through after three straight appearances in the championship and they won it, you were there to cover that Memorial cup. What was it like then some 15 years after you had been there as that beat reporter with the Sioux star coming back to watch them achieve the ultimate goal?
2: I, I could start it with, you know, that pizza commercial, it was a rainy night.
0: It
1: was a very,
2: <laughs> when I remember how, it's funny how you remember these things. It was a very rainy night in Sault Ste. Marie. And the reason I remember that is because after they won it, uh, they were having a their own impromptu post game celebration right down Queen Street in Sault Ste. Marie and the Zam I always remember the Zamboni driving down Queen Street out of the old Sioux Memorial Gardens right down the main street and it was pouring rain at the time but um, that was phenomenal and was heartbreaking when they lost in Seattle on the Zach Boyer goal I did that Memorial Cup as well Uh, yeah I was really fortunate that even though I left junior hockey technically after those years my, my first couple of years in the Sioux um I still had a really strong connection with it because in 1990 uh, I started doing the CHL game of the week um, with Paul Romanuk and uh, on TSN and, and got to do those Memorial Cups for all those years. And I also got to do the World Junior Championships. Well, I actually did that with the CBC. The, uh, the last year the CBC had World Junior Rights, 1990. I was part of a broadcast team that included Don Whitman, Scotty Bowman, and Brian Williams in Helsinki. Um, But then TSN got the World Juniors in 91, and I've basically done it every year since then, Um, for the most part. It was, I think, one year that I didn't. But um, so even though I was covering the National Hockey League as part of my job as editor-in-chief of the Hockey News, Toronto Star hockey columnist, or TSN Hockey Insider, um, I've always... Had these really strong connections to to junior hockey, be it the World Juniors or back in the day the the CHL package.
0: Sorry, I think we just breezed over a broadcast team that included Brian or uh, Scotty Bowman and Brian McFarland. Is that who you said, or Brian oh, Williams? I can't remember.
2: Brian Williams was Brian Williams. Yeah, uh, Don well, Whitman was the play-by-play guy. Scotty was the color guy, and I was sort of the between periods filler guy.
0: What was that like? Listening to those guys.
2: Oh, it was awesome. It was fantastic. So that was Eric Lindros' 16-year-old season when Canada won gold. Dick Todd and, uh, and Guy Sharon were on the bench. Uh, the, the, that was a crazy world juniors because I've told this story many times before. Canada was supposed to lose. They, they weren't going to win the gold medal. Um, the, the Russians were in the driver's seat. All the Russians had to do with their final round-robin game in Helsinki was beat a Swedish team that was like sixth or seventh place that year. And uh, lo and behold, the Russians allowed the Swedes to tie the game up with a buzzer beater right at 1959. The Russians complained that it happened after the expiry of time, but the goal counted and the the Russia-Sweden game ended in a tie. There was about three minutes left in the Canada-Czech game in Turku, and I was right at ice level, right beside the Canadian bench. And to give you some idea of how times have changed, it, we didn't have, there was no internet back then. And if there was nobody there was using it. And I, in my IFB, in my ear, the truck told me, you won't believe what just happened. Russia and Sweden just tied. If Canada holds on to win this game, they win the gold medal. So now Dick Todd and and the reason I say Dick Todd first, he was closest to me. Guy Charon was the head coach of the team. They're on the bench. They have no idea nobody's telling them this or whatever. They're just assuming that that's the case. And so I didn't want to say anything with the players right there, but I was, it was an open air. It was a funny little rink, but I was just standing like right beside the bench, right at the boards. And there was a, a, a break and I, I looked at Dick and I caught his, got his attention. And I, leaped, I said, come here a second. And I, I said, I don't know if you want the players to know this, but you should tell Gee that Russia and Sweden just tied, if you hold on to win this game, you're going to win the gold medal. And so the play started up again. He goes, okay, thanks. And he went over to Guy, and he's whispering, and Guy looks over at me like, really? And I, I'm nodding, and he goes, okay. And so the next whistle, he he gathered the guys in and told them what was going on, and the entire bench erupted. And now they had to, they had to hold this lead for another two minutes or whatever, which they did. That was the goal that uh, they're they already up on a goal by Dwayne Norris, good Newfoundlander whose son Josh now plays for the Ottawa uh, Senators. So, anyways, they won the gold medal. But that was my 1990 World Junior story.
1: Crazy. Would you have uh, would you have sold out the source in the truck who gave you that info? Like you've pro- unlike you've protected every other source you've ever had because the NHL was pretty mad at you when that central scouting list got published in the Hockey News. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no. With- yeah yeah that one the, the i don't even know who the truck told me producer probably but it was you know it was uh it was just passed along and that was uh, you know information public information at that time but you're right nobody like the the the, the n h l central scouting list <clears throat> the n h l tried to keep that stuff top secret and uh and when I got to the Sioux star. I wanted to be like John Herbert of the London Free Press. He was a great junior hockey writer. And uh, Herbie was the standard to which we all aspired to be. You know, he was the guy that I wanted to be. And John Herbert always used to get the central scouting list. And they, they'd publish it in the London Free Press. And so when I went to the two Star said, if I'm going to be a big deal here, I got I to gotta beat Herbie. And get the NHL Central Scouting list, and so one day, one year, I think I did, and I was like all pleased with myself. But Herbie, of course, was a great guy. He gave Wayne Gretzky the nickname "The Great Gretzky." Another great John Herbert story. I think it's actually true. <laughs> um, <laughs> he, he. I think he was assigned by the London Free Press on a Monday night to go cover the St. Thomas Junior B game, and he wasn't very happy about it because he covered the nights. And uh, it was a Monday night or whatever. So I think it was probably St. Thomas and St. Mary's playing. And uh, so the lead, of, the, this, the story goes that the lead of his, his story was, you know, the, the St. Thomas Stars defeated the St. Mary's Lincolns 5-4 uh, last night before. And that's where you would normally put in the attendance, like 123 people or 16,757 in terms of your standard lead when you're writing for a newspaper. And what he did instead, there were only 11 or 12 people at the game. He went around and got all their names. And so the, the lead, the lead of the story said, you know, St. Thomas, Tommies or stars or whatever they were called at the time defeated the St. Mary's Lincoln's four, three before. And then he put all 11 names in, in, in the lead. So, but, uh, the well, London Free Press was a, was a great newspaper, still is, but it was a great newspaper for covering junior hockey and, and John Herbert led the way and then Forrest Delacosta ended up there and Jim Cressman and uh, you know I could go on and on with all the, the great junior hockey reporters that uh, that I've worked with against and what have you in the, in the old days.
0: I was always told 21 words for a lead, but I think that lead is okay to break the rule because that's just <laughs> funny. Uh, you, you mentioned that central scouting list. Uh, are you able to tell us who gave it to you now? No, because st-
2: they still might be giving me stuff. So Oh, you know, there you go. You okay. always protect the source.
0: Oh, I like that. Then I, then I won't tell you who told me to ask you this, but do you still have an old blue and yellow coat that you used to wear out on the ice while coaching back in the day that you never it's, took it's- off apparently? It's not as
2: well. I there, there's a blue and yellow one, but I think the coat to which you refer.
0: Oh, blue and orange, blue and orange. orange it, lo- yeah. it looks
2: like a New York Islander or Edmonton Wyler. It's a start. It's a starter jacket, actually, and it's it's beautiful. I wish <laughs> you could see it. Um, so do now, I. <laughs> I have two children who shall remain nameless who think it's the ugliest thing that they've ever seen. But it is glorious. And what it is, it was the media gift from the 1993 Stanley Cup final. And um, back in the, the, the days when when you covered the Stanley Cup final, the NHL would give you a gift. And it usually was something pretty half decent, like a nice hoodie. Or a, or in this case, it was this, this lovely starter jacket. But it is very bright blue bright orange and white it's got a beautiful stanley cup crest on it it's and it was celebrating the hundredth i think the the i think the stanley cup goes back to 1893 and i think 1993 was the hundredth anniversary of the stanley cup and uh and so yes i would wear that on the ice when i was coaching during practice and uh i now use it i only use it a couple of times a year. Well, usually cottage cleanup in the fall when I'm bringing all the furniture in and what have you. Cottage cleanup, I might add, when even though my children are there all summer using all the facilities, it's funny in October when it's the wind is howling and you've got to get a jet ski and a boat out of the water and you've got to carry big, heavy chairs in. I'm all on my own and uh, wearing my beautiful jacket.
1: If you had to choose between that jacket or the old men's league Jersey from the Sioux that had a Colorado Rockies theme. It looked like to really get your son's attention. Which one are you choosing?
2: Oh, I think the jacket's probably uh, more important. I wish I still had the, but if the the, the sweater of which you speak, our sponsor was called Ojedaki mountain and it was a clothing store in Sault Ste. Marie. And, um, the guy that owned it, Bob Career, he was our, he played on our men's team in the Sioux Men's Hockey League. And uh, so he took the Colorado Rocky jersey and just made it, uh, and put an O in the middle of it instead of a C. So it was Ojadaki Mountain. And, uh, and and that, but there's, online, it's easy to find pictures of me. I, I it was the only time of my life where I actually had a beard. And if anything I could say from that would have been the, uh, the uh, the beautiful vintage CCM black helmet that was uh, was glorious that was the that was that and it's it's a toss up between the Cooper S three piece SK10 um, the junior teams used to wear the Toronto Marleys and uh, the Kitchener Rangers I used to particularly like the old leather version where they had three different colors and uh, it was that was a glorious helmet but the uh, the CCM was very sleek that was a that was a good one so but I, I the, the, the Stanley Cup jacket is uh is a collector's item so
0: I was told that blue and orange jacket was often accompanied by a big CCM helmet and maybe some white skates I was told is that uh is that helmet in the picture the same big CCM helmet they were talking about
2: uh no that was a blue one that that but it was uh it was a CCM helmet that yeah that one might have been a white one it was just a different same model but a little bit later the um the white skates they were only partially white if you've ever seen Pavel Bure um flying down the ice he was wearing Micron Mega skates and uh that happened to be the brand of skate that I had at the time and uh, I still have them and uh I don't go on the ice much but uh when I do, I too much ridicule wearing my black and white Micron Megas.
0: I was picturing the Fedorov white Nikes, I believe. <laughs> that would look pretty sweet too.
1: No doubt. We, we can draw as we kind of look at your career path, Bob, almost a direct line from, because you, you talked about it. You were in the, Sioux, in Sault Ste. Marie writing for the Sault Star with the same, aspirations as the players who were playing for the Greyhounds right they want to go to the NHL you want to be an NHL beat writer and of course as everybody knows you today as the original insider one of the most influential sports broadcasters in the entire country when you look back can you draw a straight line do you shake your head and wonder how that guy that started as an intern at at the Sioux Star in 78 ended up where he is in 2021
2: Yeah. I don't, you know, it's funny as you do it, I don't think you think that much about it. You're always just kind of like never looking too far ahead or too far back. You're just doing your job and grinding away and working hard. And then, but you're right. I mean, when when you get to where I've gotten to, which is semi-retirement, you know, especially when I, my contract was my full-time contract was expiring at the end of last season. um, You kind of start looking back on the whole thing and, And, you know, it's, you you always have that cliche of my, how time flies, you know, where did all the time go? One minute I was this cub reporter with the Sioux Star, the next minute, here I am, I'm semi-retiring. But I think that's the nature of life that everybody goes through. You kind of, kind of look back on it and wonder where all the time went.
0: Looking back on that time, from coaching your kids growing up to you mentioned pacing back and forth just a few years ago, as your son's team is losing in game seven, which one's harder for you when you were coaching and watching and now, you know, Mike's not playing, but he's still a part of the organization and really the architect behind it. Which one's harder for you?
2: Yeah. When you're behind the bench, you actually feel like you've got some degree of control. Although if you saw Mike play hockey, um, Sometimes I didn't have any control, even when I was on the bench coaching him. Um, sometimes the wires would touch and then it would be, uh, I, actually I would be able to try and calm him down and get him refocused or whatever, but he's very, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but he's fairly competitive and um, and that, but I think when you're behind the bench, you're, you know, you got more than your own kid to worry about. Um, and so you're, you, you know, you're doing a job and, and you, you feel like you've got some level of control, whereas when you're just being a dad, and you're in the stands, and, and I, I felt this way when Mike played college hockey, or even junior A, um, and, and I was watching in the stands, you have no control over that, and so sometimes you could see good things happening, and you'd be very excited, and sometimes you could see a train wreck approaching and you knew it was coming and maybe nobody else did, but I did. And I'm like, this isn't going to end well. And sure enough, it didn't. And, and that's, that's really hard. And, uh, but it's, um, you know, with all your kids, you, you you live vicariously through them a little bit and you just want to see them succeed. And so you're, you're hoping for the best for them, but it's uh, when they're out on the ice or behind the bench or, in the case of being a general manager, you know, you, you just live and die with every moment.
0: Real quick, farzi I just got to ask you, talk about Mike and being behind the bench, being able to control him. Did you ever threaten to cut him?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> I told Which him time?
2: That, uh, <laughs> Mike, Mike, when Mike was a little kid, he was a really good player, like for his age um, and, and did very, very well. Um, when When we got to, I was the head coach of, the the team in minor Pee-Wee. And that was the first year of contact. And and Mike hadn't hit puberty. And in fact, I had a team full of kids that hadn't hit puberty and a pretty good team and a pretty good player. And Mike were really struggling to find their way that first year of contact. And there was such a disparity in size and strength between our team and so many of the teams that we played against and that we'd done that Mike had done so well against that our team had done so well against suddenly they, they, they couldn't compete. It was difficult. And so the the, 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 the incident you're talking about or the, the question you asked about, did I ever threaten to cut him? I told him, that, as I said, physically he was fairly weak against a lot of the opposition. And so he was, he's a winger and he's on the wall and he's getting the puck. And every time he got the puck on the hash marks, the defenseman or another player would pinch down. There'd be a battle, he would lose it and the puck would stay in the end. And it just got to be so repetitive that he was never getting the puck out. And I I can recall driving home with him in the car and and not in anger or anything else. I just said, Mike, I said, I'm going to give you a, a very valuable lesson here about hockey and coaches and players. And I'm a coach, you're a player, you're a winger. If a winger can only do one thing in hockey, just one thing only, getting the puck out when he gets it on the wall at the hash mark getting it out of his own end i said if he can do that he's always going to he's always going to have the trust of the coach if he can't do anything else just let it be get the puck out of your own end and i said if you can't get the puck out of your own end i can't put you on the ice and if i can't put you on the ice then i you know then i i would have to cut you and so if you got, you got to find a way to get that puck out, because if you don't, you can't play wing on any team in hockey anywhere ever. And that,
1: that was the, that story. You mentioned Mike's competitiveness and, and Chris and I have obviously seen that up close and you don't get to where Mike is without a competitive streak. But would it be fair, Bob, to say that he comes by that competitiveness honestly?
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm competitive. I, my wife Cindy and her, she's she's competitive. Um, you know, Mike's brother Sean. He's 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 funny because he initially, hockey wise, sports wise, early on, wasn't really competitive at all. Sean was Sean was the kid who would skate out on the ice and be waving at mom and dad, looking at the lights, and and just out there having a good time. And you know, when when he played, uh, you know, he. He was motivated not by winning, but he he was in a penalty. He was only eight or nine years old, and and uh, the coach's son was the timekeeper, and Sean got a penalty or whatever, and the, the, the guy in the timekeeper's bench said to Sean, if, if you get out of here and score a goal, I'll buy you a chocolate bar after the game. And sure enough, the door opened, and lo and behold, the puck squirted up the middle of the ice at Iroquois Park, pad one, and Sean got a breakaway, and he went in and he scored. And he like went right by the timekeeper's bench, banging his stick on the glass. And afterwards, all he could talk about was he was got he got a Twix chocolate bar from the timekeeper, the coach's son, and and that's what motivated him. Mike wanted to win all the time. Mike wanted to. He lived to score goals, and he lived to win hockey games. And if he didn't score goals and he didn't win hockey games, he, and, and this was even when he was like eight, seven, eight, nine years old. I mean you know the intensity would come off him in waves you know we we had to sit him out of a game like in major novice because he was he was just too intense and 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 was you know just not acting (laughs) the right way and and but you know he, he he harnessed that over the course of his hockey playing career and uh and but you know at times things as I said the wires would touch sometimes. And, uh, he's he's as about as competitive as it gets. So so we all are, um, but he's he's he can go next level competitiveness, which is I think for the job that he's got is probably a good thing. And and the other good thing about Mike is he's always had an innate tremendous hockey sense, and so I think he's. He's been able to, as he's gotten older, especially being able to balance that competitiveness with
1: understanding the bigger picture of how you go about things. Would you forgive him? Sorry, Chris, as I nope. just jump in for a quick follow up. but Would you forgive Mike if he left an opposing rink or was passing by an opposing rink where he had trouble winning as a head coach or even a player and and flashed the bird at that rink as, as he passed by it on the bus or in the car? Or, I mean, I don't know would, if you just find that forgivable or not, but. Oh, that would be forgivable. <laughs> I think it, it, cause it was something that you may have done when a certain daily newspaper wouldn't.
2: Yeah. I, I know what you're
1: talking about. I was going to get to that.
2: I just <laughs> wanted to see if you uh, had, had done your, done your homework, but yeah, when I was, I wanted to be hired by the Toronto star, the Globe and Mail or the Toronto sun to be an NHL hockey writer. And I was working part-time at the Globe and, um, I worked freelance when I was at Ryerson at the Toronto Star. Um, I hadn't worked at the Sun, but on my way home from the Globe, so I'd work a rewrite shift and I wouldn't finish until midnight or one. So I would jump in my car, a little yellow Volkswagen bug, and I would leave the Globe and Mail building. And as I was leaving the Globe and Mail building, because they weren't hiring me full time, I'd turn around and give the finger to the Globe and Mail building. And then I would drive down Spadina onto the gardener and I would be going on the gardener and if you know your geography in Toronto, you would drive right on the right-hand side as I was driving east on the gardener, I'd go by the Toronto Star Building, and I'd give the finger to the Toronto Star Building as I went by, and if you go a little further, the back side of the Toronto Sun, which is on King Street East, and that I'd look out the driver's side and give the finger to the Toronto Sun. That would be my nightly routine, because I wasn't making any headway with any of these organizations to get a, a full-time uh,
0: hockey job. A lot of exercise in that middle finger. <laughs> you mentioned uh, Mike's competitive side. Does Sean's competitive side come out now that he's working for, I guess, TSN's opposition in Sportsnet? Is he looking through the phone at the cottage?
2: Yeah, <laughs> not 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 exactly. But he, I, I never finished the Sean story. Like he was like that when he was a little kid. I, I was like flabbergasted as as a crazy hockey dad when he announced. You know, our kids always played. Competitive hockey in the winter, competitive lacrosse in the summer. That's the way you do it in Whitby. And, and we, we just loved it. And so Sean, surprise, surprise, announced to me when he was like, I don't know, nine or 10 years old, yeah, I think I'm going to take the summer off from lacrosse. And I said, what do you mean you're going to take the summer off from lacrosse? Yeah, I think I'm just going to relax this summer. i think relax? <laughs> what do you mean, Relax. And, uh, and that, but he did that one year he took it off, but it's funny, Mike and Sean experienced the opposite thing, um, at the age of 10, 11, 12 years old. And, th- and that is Mike didn't go through puberty early and struggled, um, with hockey, um, for a, a year or two before he got his bearings again and his game really took off. And, and Sean was the opposite. Sean was very casual about the whole thing. Um, but, and, and, and Sean, you know, Mike played triple A hockey from right from the get go every year. Um, Sean was started out in double A, got cut from double A, went down to single A. And then, um, all of a sudden he went through puberty earlier than a lot of kids. And he ended up going from A to triple A and, Suddenly, when he got his confidence a little bit and and had a little bit of a physical edge over some of the kids he was playing against, he suddenly became ultra, ultra competitive, like almost too competitive. Um, I won't go into the long story of the London tournament, but we came home early because he got kicked out for any number of transgressions on the ice. Um, which I wasn't very happy about. But see, I wasn't very happy when he wanted to take the summer off and relax. And I wasn't very happy when he was too competitive and and, uh, and got booted out of a tournament for uh, going a little over the top. So, you know, dads are never happy. But, uh, uh, yeah, so Sean became really competitive both in hockey and lacrosse. And um, when he played Whippy Lacrosse, when they played Oakville, there was some kid named John Tavares who was two or three years younger than Sean but playing up. Um, and it was Sean's job to try and shut him
1: down. Good luck to that. But he he
2: would he would chase him around and, and give him what for whenever he
1: could. You used the term a moment ago, uh, "crazy hockey dad," which was the title of of one of the books that you wrote, uh, "Confessions well, a of a quest- Crazy." It had a question mark. It did. On it. Well, I, I think you might have answered the question, but uh, you, <laughs> I'll, I'll allow you to to take a little more latitude here. <laughs> uh, are do you still feel not the crazy part, Bob? But like a hockey dad considering yeah
2: every day yeah there's and especially you know uh, you know as soon as Mike stopped playing I thought okay well you know from that perspective I guess my hockey dad days are over with Mike and then he immediately Got the assistant coaching job with the Kitchener Rangers and <laughs> I was back in business as a crazy hockey dad so now I had a team to cheer for and a vested interest and and uh and and so that was great and and obviously it's escalated to the point now where he's he's the general manager and the head coach and and obviously now that he's the head coach in this past last season you're even that much more invested again because now it's like you know, it's literally all on his shoulders. There's no one, if the general manager and the head coach are having a disagreement, I don't know how they're going to settle that. But, uh, um, you know, he's, uh, I'm fully vested as a hockey dad. And with Sean, it's just a different kind of being a hockey dad now because, You know, I watch every one of his broadcasts and I'm holding my breath, making sure that there's no missteps in the opening when he does a Leaf game or if he's doing a Montreal Canadian game on Hockey Night in Canada and making sure there's no mistakes and he does it flawless. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, you're always a proud parent who's trying to hope for the best for your kids. And every time now they've got a game or a, a broadcast, whatever the case may be, I'm fully invested.
0: When Mike made the decision to take over full-time as head coach and when Sportsnet got the NHL rights, did both sons come to you and ask for some help coming to that well, decision I, I, and dealing with it?
2: No, I wouldn't say that they, you know, I have constant dialogue with the kids. They probably tell you too much. Um, they probably see dad on the they call and they're like, huh, not again. <laughs> but, um, no, we're. I think we're. My wife Cindy, myself, Mike, Sean. I think we're a pretty close family. We talk a lot, and um, and and that. And you got to give them both their space. But you know, I think there's. Uh, yeah, put it this way. I'm sure I've offered opinions to Mike when he's like rolling his eyes, and it's like, okay, whatever. But nevertheless, I always feel like it's part of your fatherly advice uh, and and thing. But I, you know. I don't think there's like specific moments where they say, Hey, I really need to talk to you about something, but Sean will ask me questions about this or that. And, and so will Mike sometimes, but, uh, and if they don't, then I'll, uh, I'll volunteer. So.
1: The town of Whitby, uh, has been mentioned a few times, including the Whitby Wildcats, uh, the team itself. And there's a, another name that is very strongly connected to the Ontario hockey league and the town of Whitby. Did you ever coach against David Branch? Did you cross paths with him at all?
2: No, we lived on the same street. We, he lived six doors up from me in Whitby, me. And um, I've known David since, well, since I started covering junior hockey in 78, 79. You know, Tubby Schmaltz was still the commissioner running the OHA out of Walkerton uh, back then. But um, David was on the scene right after that, around 79 or so. And so I've known David a, a long time, and uh, I didn't didn't coach against David. He always coached older kids, and and uh, his his boys were older than Mike and Sean. And so, um, but I'd see him at the rink all the time. And uh, so, yeah, the the Whitby connection is strong.
0: What do you think of the job he's done in the Ontario Hockey League?
2: I think he's done a great job, and, uh, you know, and it's a very challenging job. Um, but I think he, you know, he brought an an era of professionalism to it. Um, you know, I'm on the hockey hall of fame selection committee with him. Um, you know, I'm, but I'm first and foremost, I'm now a Kitchener Ranger fan. So if, uh, if, if a Kitchener Ranger gets suspended or whatever, I I probably disagree with his ruling. So
1: (laughs) (laughs) you mentioned Tubby Schmaltz. I can't help but think so far, Bob, I've got. Two job, Bob smoker, smoky smoker, hoser, uh, the Bob father. How many nicknames? Bobby Margarita, Bobby marker. <laughs> How many nicknames do you have? And Oh, I don't do you Like any of them, <laughs> which one's your favorite.
2: I don't really, let's see. Um, in high school, the first one I got was Ken's K E N Z just, they got short McKenzie got shortened to Ken's. Um, you know, Bobby Mack probably was uh, a big one. Um, you know, smokers started in, when I was at Ryerson. Um, long story short, there used to be a lot of boxing on television. And me and my buddies, we at Ryerson, we'd go to a guy's. They, he had a place on Sherburn Street, a condo, an apartment. And they had like a sunken living room. And above it was a dining room area that overlooked it. And it was about the size of a boxing ring. And we used to go over and, and have cocktails and watch fights on TV. And then one of the guys had some boxing gloves. He used to box in Montreal, and he had two pairs of boxing gloves. And so we'd get lubricated a little bit and throw the gloves on and use the dining room, which didn't have a table in it anyways. And it was a boxing ring, and so I, w- I couldn't fight my way out of a wet paper bag. But, and I was the guy that I was sparring with, was the guy that actually knew how to box, and we were just supposed to have some fun, and and he probably took some liberties and gave me a couple of stiff jabs to the face, and I, I just basically windmilled him and fell on top of him and pounded him, through. and so they called me Smoking Bob McKenzie for because Joe Fraser was big at the time, and Smoking Bob got ch- changed to Smoker after a while, so there was that one, and then uh, and then Bob. Bob and Doug McKenzie, once I started in the business, uh, most of the media guys would call me hose. still call me Hoser to this day. Um, and then after that, I got, uh, you know, all the, the other stuff, the, the Bob father, Bobby Margarita, those have all been created recently, I guess.
0: <laughs> Being on TV and in the uh, spotlight, I guess, during that whole Bob and Doug McKenzie thing, walking through some airports i'm sure there were some interactions with some uh viewers and listeners that uh probably didn't go too kindly yeah, it, i guess
2: get it got, it got a little tiring after a while yeah. and, and, you know at the time it wasn't a no big deal because it was so prevalent i mean yeah. it was crazy and i and i actually played it up and, and still do sometimes but i mean 10 or 15 years later um you know some guy would come up to me at an airport and say uh say uh, Hey, Bob, where's your brother, Doug? And I'm like, and I, I'd be looking at him like, yeah, hey, dude, like you're like 15, 20 years late. With that <laughs> one." <laughs> but it's funny, I was it, I was just in Florida and I was at a bike shop and I was talking to the guy and, and he saw my name on the bill or whatever. And and, and he, he said to me, the, this was just the other day. and He's like, hey, how's your brother, Doug? Do you get a lot of that? And I just laughed and I said, not anymore, but <laughs> once upon a time, yeah. Do you but feel it, the, other, the other funny story on that is I was in, I was at LAX and I was in the lounge at LAX and I was getting ready to fly from Los Angeles to Toronto. It probably would have been, I'm going to guess it was around, maybe it might've been the 93 uh, playoffs, Toronto, LA. And um, I ran into uh, to, to Dave Thomas. Not, not Wendy's Dave Thomas, but uh, Dave Thomas, SCTV fame. And uh, I saw him and I said, uh, I said hey, Dave, um, Bob McKenzie. Uh, and I said, I just want, oh, I didn't actually, I didn't say Bob McKenzie. I said, hey, Dave, uh, thanks for nothing. And he goes, what do you mean? And I go, my name, my name, my actual name is Bob McKenzie. And he goes, yeah, don't blame me. That's Moranis. He was uh, he Bob, I was Doug. And I laughed and that was good.
0: You can't blame a good guy like Moranis. Come on. Oh, I know.
1: You, do you feel now, Bob, that you've kind of come full circle, going back to those roots, obviously, covering the Ontario Hockey League and the Sioux Greyhounds? You still follow prospects. You've covered the CHL throughout your career, but primarily became that pro guy. But now... With, with your son as the general manager and head coach of one of the premier franchises in the CHL, is it almost like full circle for you?
2: No doubt about it. And, uh, and I thought about that when I did the semi-retirement contract. I got a five-year, I mean, year one of a five-year contract where my primary responsibility is the World Junior Championships. My secondary responsibility is to do the TSN draft rankings three or four times a year and cover the NHL draft. And, um, and then the other parts of it is, you know, trade deadline day, free agent frenzy day. Uh, and I think for Toronto, a handful of Toronto Maple Leaf regional broadcasts. So the vast majority of everything I'm doing now has a strong connection to junior hockey. And I thought that's a fitting way for, uh, for, to, to go full circle. And uh, and I'm quite happy to do that. And I've always tried to maintain my roots and, and keep a close following on what's going on, not just in the OHL, but to, and this is even before Mike got involved. I, I still tried to be aware of, of what was going on and, um, and to be aware of the, the person, you know, some of the greatest people you, you meet have been through junior hockey. And I listened to your, uh, your OHL stories with Sanaya I'm talking about Larry Mavity. And I'm I was laughing and laughing and laughing, thinking about Larry Mavity and Burt Templeton and, Brian Kilray and and all these cast of characters. And I think back to when I covered the Sioux Greyhounds and to go into the old uh, Windsor arena on a Thursday night, there was, you know, it was 4,000 people and they were like, they were losing their minds. It was like the best place to watch junior hockey in Ontario at the time. It was, it was like going into the Boston garden back in the day. And it was absolutely fantastic. And, you know, going into all, to know all the nuances of all the rinks to, you know, to climb the ladder in the old Kingston rink, to climb the ladder in Sudbury, okay. to climb the ladder in Sault Ste. Marie, all these old rinks, you had to climb a straight up ladder to get into the press box. And, uh, and so, yeah, I remember all that stuff very fondly. And, uh, and it's all different now because most of the rinks, those old rinks are all gone, but um, it's still great memories to have.
1: One time, Bob, after a loss, uh, after the Sioux Greyhounds lost to the Rangers in the Sioux, we found we couldn't get out of the press box because somebody had taken the ladder away. I don't know who. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably Gino Cavallo.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like every OHL Stories podcast we've done in some way, Mav has come up or the Windsor Arena. Yeah, I feel like everybody has a Windsor Arena story. Oh, do, do you have one, Bob? Other than just oh, just, hand them
2: it, it was just it was just fantastic. Uh, it was just such an unbelievable atmosphere, and um, you know, back then, you know, Ernie Godden was uh, the the goal leader. My brother-in-law that year, my, my brother-in-law, he won the Eddie Powers Trophy as the leading scorer in the OHA, and Ernie Godden. And they they played minor hockey with each other and against each other, and and uh, I think they actually got into a a fight um and I, I probably shouldn't tell this story because i always strive to be impartial but I, I think my brother-in-law was my future brother-in-law was fighting ernie godden in the windsor arena and i might have been near the play-by-play guy and i was going come on johnny hit him, hit him. <laughs> but uh yeah so it was pretty funny
1: what do you think of the game today bob uh, the on ice product professional junior, whatever the case may be, based on the evolution you've seen over the decades,
2: I think it's great um, I think it's you know unbelievably fast, unbelievably skilled, um, players put an extraordinary amount of time and effort into it um, you know I've said this often that there's times when I miss the 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 legitimate animosity, you know that I, I, I there was from the old days. There's a certain certain element of of um, just holding. Trying to get rid of a call here. Um, Breaking trades.
0: Breaking trades uh, on the OHL uh, stories. Exactly. <laughs>
2: um, I, I love that animosity so much. So you know the old days when teams from one player uh, players from one team to another team, they would see each other like in the off season and they wouldn't even talk to each other. The, that part of it all appealed to me a little bit, but you know, the animosity and you know, that led to fighting and, and, and because I've become an enlightened individual and because I have a, both sons who, who got concussions in their career. And my son, uh, Sean had to quit playing competitive sports at, 13 because of concussions and I know the real damage that is done um, and the you know the effects that could haunt you for the rest of your life if you don't take care of yourself I can't in good conscience now look at hockey fights especially in junior hockey and feel the same about them as I did back then um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm it's easy for me to reconcile the loss of legitimate animosity um, because the alternative is, you know, there's there's a, a style of play that I, I I have a tough time reconciling with the the health of the players who play it. So simple as that. But um, yeah, I, I I just think the, the the speed and skill of the game is absolutely fantastic, and um, I'm just blown away by how good all the players are now. And it used to be fourth line players in the NHL or fourth line players in junior hockey. They They really were so far removed from the the first or second or third line guys. But now there's, on a lot of teams, there's not a big, big difference.
0: I feel like as someone who literally grew up watching you all the time on television, my friends wouldn't be friends with me if I didn't ask this question. Can you take me through a day of your life during either trade frenzy or free agent day? Is it you texting everyone? Is everyone texting you being like, Bob, keep it on the down low, but I got this. What is a day like? Because I get asked all the time, how is he so connected? And my answer is, I don't know.
2: <laughs> yeah, you, you know what? You just, you, whether it's myself or Darren Dragger or Pierre Lebrun, Frank Soravalli or the guys that do it for the other networks, um, it's the same thing. I mean, you just grind away. You make a lot of connections over your years in the game and you get to know a lot of people and, and you harass them and you bother them and you control them and you twist their arm. And it's gotten harder and harder and harder to do. Um, it, the game's become more corporate. It's become more business-like. Teams want to break their own news, whereas before they didn't worry about it as much. Um, you know, even now agents like to break the story. And, and so some of your best sources are now doing the business, do, breaking stories themselves. And so you just grind away at it and, um, and you do it at a lot of different levels. And, and what a lot of people don't realize is the collaboration that's required. So, you know, I might hear something. And I'll I'll tell Darren Dreger, and then he'll make some calls, and then and then he'll tell he'll say, well, this is what I got, and then Pierre LeBron will say, oh, okay, well, I'll make some calls on that, and then and then Frank Servali will get in on it, and, and we'll all get in on it, and and then suddenly somebody else will end up with the you know got it confirmed. Just go with it. We don't care who breaks it, as long as we get it. And so it's kind of a team effort, and and I think that's. The thing that probably people don't realize is whether I I could be, could be me breaking a trade, but I'm not breaking it. If Darren Drager, Pierre Lebrun, Frank Cervalli, or any number of people who work at our place, Jamie McLennan, Jeff O'Neill, the list goes on and on. If they don't all contribute to it.
0: Is it still phone calls or has it turned now to text? mostly, mostly
2: Mostly texting, but on, on that day, on, on that day, sometimes you, especially close to the deadline, or sometimes you, you cold call somebody and hope that they're going to pick up. And, uh, and that the older days, it used to be all telephone calls. So there was no texting and what have you. So, But I'll tell you what, you got to be careful with the texting because sometimes guys think they're being funny and they're like, they tell you something and you see a text and you're like, oh, and, and you're, if you just went with it, and then, you know, and then 30 seconds later, haha! just kidding. And you're like, no, don't kid. That's no, not do funny.
1: not do that. <laughs> you know, when you talk about that grind, Bob, it reminds me of when Mike was on this podcast and he talked about growing up in the game, obviously with, with you in the role that you had as a sports journalist as his father, but he had the chance to go to Stanley cup finals. He had the chance to go to world junior tournaments and knowing how hard you had to work that grind that exists how important was it to you and how difficult was it to maintain that all important balance we talk about between your work and your family life?
2: Yeah, it was really hard, but you know, you tried And and, in my way of spending time with the kids was to coach them. And because when you're the coach and you're involved, it gives you an element of control. So when I was the head coach of the Whitby Wildcats for Sean or Mike, the best part of it for me was when I went to the scheduling meeting, I already had my TSN schedule. So, you know, they'd say, what night do you want for your home night? And I'd say Friday night. And somebody say, why Friday? And I'd go, cause I just looked at my TSN schedule and we have no Friday games all year. So I knew that I could coach every home game. Um, and you know, what time, what practice time do you want? Uh, I want the four o'clock slot on Tuesday afternoon. Why do you want the four o'clock slot? Because, I can coach from 4 till 5 o'clock, and I know that I can still get to TSN by 6 o'clock for sports Center if I need to. Um, so that was allowing me uh, a degree of control to be more involved with, with my kids' sports when I otherwise maybe wouldn't or shouldn't have had the time to do it because things were just so crazy because I had a full-time job at the Toronto Star or the Hockey News. and I had a full-time job at TSN, and I was still coaching my kids in hockey and lacrosse and what have you. So it was great. And, um, and I think the kids really enjoyed it too. Although it was a double-edged sword, honestly. because um, I, I remember the podcast you did with Mike, you know, the positive was that he got to go to Stanley cup finals. He got to go to Memorial cups. He got to go to world junior championships. And he loved, and he ate all of that up because he is, you know, he just, he eats, sleep, and breathes hockey. And uh, he was always that kid when you know 10 11 years old he would get dressed earlier than everybody else on his team and they'd all be fooling around in the dressing room he'd be out watching the game before um, because he was a student of the game and he, even at that age he absolutely absolutely loved it um, but it was a double-edged sword too because when he was young he was a, he was a good player so he would attract attention for that he also attracted attention because very young in life he had to wear glasses and he played hockey with glasses under his mask, which was under his, under his cage, which was very unusual. So he took a beating for that, you know, what kids are like. Um, and, um, and on top of everything else, everybody knew he was my kid and I was a well-known figure in the ranks and I was coaching. And so he would get it pretty, pretty bad a lot of the time. So he, that part of it wasn't easy because when things weren't going well for him, there was no shortage of people, whether it was parents and other team coaches on the other team, kids on the other team who are given, Oh, I bet that's the TSN turning point. And, you know, so he takes a penalty and he'd go in and they get scored on or whatever. And he's coming back out on the ice. They're, well, that's the TSN turning point, Mackenzie, your stupid penalty or whatever. And, and, you know, and even got with older, was, I can remember his 15 year old OHL draft year. I was at the Salt Lake city winter Olympics. Cause I remember this very clearly and was actually my buddy's, uh, who, who coached the, the, the game they called me up and they said you won't believe what happened in our playoff game tonight they got eliminated in the playoffs that night it was the end of the season and they said that the referee the entire game was verbally abusing mike like from the start of the game right to the end and uh when things weren't going well and he was getting more and more frustrated and and you know your daddy's not here to help you now and things like that and and so it was really bad and um and that, but you know what he he it made him gave him a, a thicker skin and realized uh, what what hockey's all about and uh, and all's fair in love and war I guess and um, and it also gave him I think to, to see the whole side of of that hockey at that level at the elite levels whether it was the NHL or World Juniors or whatever that it's not he didn't see the romanticized version of it. He saw what it was really like in, in being around me and sort of the unvarnished side of what pro hockey, what world juniors and the pressure and how the game can chew people up and spit them out. And so I think he was well aware of all that stuff as he got older. And uh, that probably helped him a little bit in terms of uh,
0: the career that he's in now. Going to college for playing hockey was probably a lot easier on him than two after hearing some of those stories.
2: Yeah, although the, the only reason he went to college was because he wasn't ready to play in the OHL. He physically wasn't ready. He was a late bloomer, and yeah. he was he was he was able. He he was drafted in the seventh round by Saginaw. Um, he couldn't have played in the OHL as a sixteen-year-old or even a seventeen-year-old. Maybe as an eighteen-year-old, but in a depth role, if he was lucky. Um, but by the time he got to be twenty. He was a pretty. He was a real good twenty-year-old freshman in the NCAA, and twenty years old, you're an overage player in the OHL. He never would have got to that stage. So, for him, it was an easy choice to make. He just wasn't ready to play in the OHL at the time, and um, you know, for uh, if he had to be an elite kid, he, he would have been in the OHL
0: for sure. When you're commenting on the game down there for NBC, does your style change at all versus? No cuz
2: no cuz I'm just doing I you know I'm an insider so I'm I'm basically just you know I, I assume most of the people that are watching know what we're talking about and, and quite frankly in a in a 3 or 4 minute segment where you're covering four items about what the latest news is in the National Hockey League you don't have time to explain to somebody who somebody is you've just got to use their last name and assume they know who it is
1: Just before we let you go Bob there's something I really wanted to get your perspective on given your time in this game and it ties into what you were just talking about there with some of the challenges that Mike faced, uh, you know, from, from referees, from fans there, there is, there is the culture side of this game that has reached, I I think a, a point of reckoning over the last few years, Uh, particularly what we've seen from coaches and of course the difficulty that that players of color or other visible minorities might have in breaking into this game. And I don't know what three white guys sitting around who talk about the game can provide, but when I think of everyday hockey heroes, volume two, which you've also uh, another book you've participated in, and it it tells more of those stories of, of the, the underdogs, if you will, who aren't the the typical kids you'd see in the game, but, but where do you see the culture at? And, and are you, are you okay with this reckoning? Is it is it time maybe hockey took a look at itself?
2: Well, I think every day. I think every day, all of us individually, collectively, uh, you know, you've got to look in the mirror every day and say, how, how can we all be better? If hockey's going to take, you know, continue to grow and not shrink, um, there's only one way to do that. And that's to, to build a much bigger arena. And that bigger arena means welcoming everybody into it. So the diversity and the inclusion, um, it's, it's the only way the game will grow because it's such an expensive game to play and there's so many almost natural roadblocks to economically um, and, and culturally that if we don't find ways to welcome um, quote-unquote non-traditional um, groups in, then the, the game's going to shrink and it's going to die. And so um, I, I think... I've I've certainly tried to impart to both my kids, and and, and I think the and, and they're well aware of of where we're at with all of that. Mike is finely tuned to to that aspect of hockey culture, and and uh, and what he's doing in Kitchener, I believe, em- embodies that. Um, and my son Sean is 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 highly aware of. Um, of of that reconciliation that you're talking about, and 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 hockey needing to be a welcoming place for everybody, and and that doesn't matter who your color or your religion or your gender or whatever the case may be. And and one of the things I've been really excited about with that Everyday Hockey Heroes franchise that Simon and Schuster has put together with myself, uh, Sarah Saint Pierre, the editor, Jim Lang, um, is to tell these stories of of people that might otherwise, um, you know, not be considered traditional in the hockey sense. And we've got to get away from that in the hockey culture. And we've got to make sure that it's welcoming and that uh, and that people are treated well and, uh, and that there's a respect factor there for everybody. So I think, uh, I think the kid, my kids certainly know that I know that. And, uh, but it's a work in progress and, you know, and as you say, it's not for three white guys to sit here and pontificate about where, how far down the road we are or how successful we've been, other than just wake up every day, look in the mirror and say, okay, what can I do today to make this a more welcoming game for everybody, regardless of what color, what sex, um, whatever the case may be.
0: Extremely well said. Um, I, that's a pretty serious topic. And I think one that we try to cover whenever it comes up, but I know we got to let you go and I want to end off on a little lighter topic. If we can, um, you once said that the great thing about the hockey world is there are a lot of people out there with loose lips. Well, a source told me that, uh, your, your music taste is a little all over the map from Leonard Skinner to the hip to rap to country. Has it always been that way?
2: Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah I, I my my uh my dad was an irish tenor and so you know i uh you know i love listening to andrea bocelli i love john McDermott singing danny boy a cappella um you know um but you know i grew up in in the 60s and 70s and so you know, hard rock in the 70s was, you know, Led Zeppelin. I I love to think about these things sometimes. I was going to put this one, everybody does these things on Twitter and social media, you know, like Desert Island sort of stuff. But I was like, what, if you could only listen to five artists, musical artists for the rest of your life, you're only limited to five, who would the five be? And so, you know, I, I, I thought that was a good one because for me, I started thinking about it and I was like, okay, I, I'm going to go with the Beatles. I'm going to go with the Rolling Stones. I'm going to go Neil Young. I'm going to go the Tragically Hip. And then for that fifth one, I was like all over the map. I was thinking Frank Sinatra and I was thinking Led Zeppelin, um, Andrea Bocelli. And I. so I'm number five is still TBD, but, um, you know, I love, I love music. And I love all types of music. I love Canadian music. Absolutely love the Arkells, the Glorious Sons, uh, on and on it goes. So, um, but the hip is, uh, hip is special. And, and if I've imparted anything to my kids, um, both of them absolutely love the hip and have probably been to more hip shows than I've been to because I was always working when
1: they went to the hip shows that I arranged to get them in, so. The perks, the perks of being kids of the Bob father. Uh, do you really? Is Pitbull really on your workout playlist? By the way,
2: yes, it is absolutely. Okay. And I, I might admit that as much as there's a few Pitbull songs that I really do like, when I'm getting on the rowing machine at the cottage in the garage, um, I particularly play it louder when I know the, the boys are there. <laughs> so worldwide, and and I and I might even throw on the. Uh, the uh, 1993 Stanley Cup media jacket, um, like as it. well.
1: What's the point of being a father if you can't embarrass your kids? You
2: got it, you know the routine.
1: <laughs> absolutely. You know the a little pitbull
0: rolling out of TSN Studios July 1st after a full day. Had oh, that's Leonard's line. Okay, Leonard
2: Skinner. that was always, uh, I had my signature song, uh, after Free agent Frenzy. I jump in the car, open the sunroof, put the windows down, and uh as I would be heading up to the cottage to assume Bobby Margarita persona, I would be blaring at full blast. They call me the breeze.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Fantastic. Bob, this has been a a ton of fun. Thanks so much for joining the podcast and and sharing your stories with us.
2: Awesome. I look forward to uh, going back to uh, listening to you guys call the games and, uh, and uh, can't wait for, for that to happen. It's been a, a crazy year and all i would say to you guys and to everybody else and all the ohl fans but especially kitchener ranger fans just especially the poor kids that haven't they've lost a whole year of hockey it's crazy you can't even imagine um that happening but yet here we are so um
1: everybody hang
2: in i got to assume that better times are ahead and somehow we'll all uh, we'll all come out uh, the better for it somehow <music>